This episode contains foul language that may not be suitable for some listeners, as well as audio inappropriate for some Geelong Football Club supporters. The views and opinions expressed during this interview are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any organization, company, and or individual. All content provided are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any organization, company, and or individual. Now on with the show. Expression Radio is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of Geoscientists and the Minerals Council of Australia. Expression Radio is also an official media partner of the 2022 PDAC conference. To find out more about these organizations, go to expressionradio.com. My name is Ahmad, and this is Expression Radio, a podcast focusing on the past, present, and the future of exploration. On this week's episode, Steve and I got the chance to sit down with Dave Lowey, who's the chief geoscientist and technologist at Index Limited. Dave was one of the first people we wanted to talk to on this show, but it has taken us a while to get him on. So it seems fitting that he joins us for the 50th episode for our show. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as Steve and I did. Now on with the show. Today we're talking to Dave Lowey, uh, the Chief Geoscientist and Technologist at Imdex, and we're going to talk about the development of, of IOGAS. So Dave, welcome to Expression Radio. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, um, well, first of all, thanks guys for getting me on here. Um, I think the IOGAS stories, of, I think you'll find out in the course of this interview is actually quite an interesting and funny story in a lot of ways. Uh, so I'm looking forward to putting that story out in the public domain. A bit scary to think it's going to be preserved uh, on the internet forever and that my own kids will probably listen to it. So yeah, yeah. I might have to be a bit aware of that on the way through. Yeah, so, uh, you know, just uh, don't stuff it up. <laughs> that's all <laughs> oh, yeah, say. that's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so a bit about me. So um, I'm a bit odd, I suppose, in many ways, and a lot of people would agree with that. But uh, I have both a PhD and a trade um, which is certainly a bit odd, but I think that gives me quite a unique perspective on the world and, and people and the way people operate and technology. And uh, it makes me extremely comfortable talking to the C-suite of a mining company or going into a workshop and being out on the shop floor and talking to all the tradies and people do real work. Mm-hmm. Um, makes me extremely comfortable doing that and I can strike up a good rapport with people. And yeah. I think later on we'll talk about starting up a business and trying to run a small business. I think that element of having a really good rapport with people is really, really important because mm-hmm. um, these things are always about people. So just one quick question. Did you want, uh, you know, did you have a plan of combining that kind of technical PhD space with kind of the, where the rubber meets the road with people using it? Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> good. Excellent. Yep. There, there, well, there is a bit of a history here. So I started off in engineering at university and uh, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, people will be listening to this will be horrified probably but um, I did my first and one of my best business deals in my life where I got near to the end of second year in electrical engineering but I'd run so far off the rails by that point that the head of department called me and, and he offered me a deal and he said Dave if you just leave I'll make sure it never appears on your record that you're ever here <laughs> but if you stay you're going to fail everything at the end of second year there'll be a permanent record of it uh, so I elected just to leave at that point um, perfect so that was my, my first significant deal of any size that I've ever done yep. uh, but it turned out actually to be very good and then I then I uh, then I started the trade after that I was at a loose end I suppose mm-hmm. I applied to do an apprenticeship as an, ironically as an instrument technician I now work for a company that builds uh, instruments for the exploration and mining industry. Uh, again, that was completely unplanned. 
Yep. Um, but I worked in an oil refinery for four years and um, working oh, with wow. lots of very impressive technical equipment. Yep. Um, and that was, well, extremely educational, working in heavy industry, working in process control. You know, we can literally pull a wire out of the wall and blow up a plant, right? So that um, you, you learn a lot when you're doing that, and it's an incredible amount of responsibility for a young apprentice to take that on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, that's just what you do. Yep. Um, and, you know, I often talk to people at work now that when I went into the mining industry, uh, because obviously safety is very important when you're working in oil refining, everyone pays attention because the the risk of blowing yourself up is very high at all times. <laughs> yep. Uh, so you take it very seriously. But when I got into the mining industry, I'm talking 20 years ago now, that was absolutely not the case, of yep. course. Things have changed now. And mm-hmm. I think, I actually think our own industry is really still catching up and... One of my pet topics is, you know, safety is not following a, a rote list of things. Safety is in your head and you're the person that's responsible for your own safety and mm-hmm. be in the moment and think about it. Mm-hmm. So we've already wandered quite a bit off track. No, no, no that's all right. So, uh, so what, what well, was so the... Then, okay, so at the end of the apprenticeship, um, I was Shell. I was working for Shell. They wanted to send me to The Hague and for me to do chemical engineering, um, okay. sponsor me through that. Um but I really didn't want to work in oil refineries for the rest of my life. Uh, interesting places, but um, from a technical point of view, but I just didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, I, but I did decide I was going to go back to university, have another go. So different time this time around. Now I knew I had, I knew how I could play up and get the work done. Yeah. Um, rather than just the playing up. Bit. Yeah. You were a more rounded individual. More rounded, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, sort of. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I actually went to do natural resource management in the university that ran the best natural resource management course in Australia okay. was the University of New England up in Armidale in yep. northern New South Wales. Uh, but because I'd had some university credits when I went up there, not many people know these stories. It's <laughs> funny to be telling the world now. Uh, but, <laughs> but when I went up there to do it, because I had credits, uh, the natural resource management included, you had to do first year geology, but they typically did it in their second year as to round out the knowledge base. Mm-hmm. But I did it in first year. I didn't know the first fucking thing about geology uh, when I got to the university and I sat there and I still to this day remember the very first lectures being run by Barry McKelvey um, and he used to go to the Antarctic every two years in fact he's got an Antarctic medal yep. I was sitting there and he was just showing pictures of Antarctica and the geology and that was it <laughs> I was just sold yep. that was it that, that's I ended up doing geology then yeah wow um, and then went on to do a, a, a PhD but I think the things that, you know, given obviously given my engineering bent uh, first time around, I've always liked the more quantitative aspects of geoscience, you know, so um, geochemistry, which is where I ended up specialising in, but also geophysics and uh, anything you can attach numbers to. Maths. Uh, basically, the math side of geology really interested me. Yep. Uh, and also a strong desire to understand the, the fundamentals of the science. So, you know, reactions happen for a reason, thinking about thermodynamics and processes and flows and structures and pressure differentials all those sorts of things yeah uh, are really what excited me about geology and yeah. i'm the sort of mind that i i need to know how things work um mm-hmm. even you know we, when we start talking about iogas and even all of the maths that's going in iogas will have been simulated or tested especially in the early days i would work out some way of doing it in excel to teach myself so i knew exactly what the maths was doing uh before we handed it over to the devs to go into the software product yeah wow so anyway, that's. I, I suppose I really, really like the numerate side of the geosciences. Um, and you never thought of being an academic? <laughs> <laughs> There's a leading question. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, 
Be careful what you say the next day. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't give it the esteemed company here. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I love teaching. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. I, I really love teaching, and I've, I've actually done quite a bit of teaching in universities over the years, mm-hmm. and run you know lots of workshops internal for company internally for companies as well. Um, I really like that. I like dealing with postgraduate and professional people. I don't think I could just do the same courses year in year out teaching undergraduate things like that. Just not my not my gig. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do. I mean. I was actually thinking about this on the way from the car, you know, research universities. And I think one of the interesting things about being a geoscientist, and I think we we forget that we're geoscientists, we're scientists, right? Often that gets forgotten by geos, mm-hmm. much to their detriment, actually. Uh, but on the way over, I was thinking, what science, what career can you have in science where you can go to your boss and say, I've got a hypothesis, can you give me a few million bucks to test it? And you go out and test it, right? Oh, that didn't fucking work. Can I go have another few million dollars and test this other hypothesis? Sure, here you go. Go and test that. I, I don't know another field of science where you can get that amount of money to test all the crazy ideas within reason that you might have, right? Yeah. And then it becomes a, you know, geoscience and exploration is a, becomes an experiment and that's the all-important aspect of it is the design of experiment aspect of geoscience mm-hmm. is I think something that we don't think through and I think even the undergraduate teaching in a way has forgotten that that you, you know working as a professional geoscientist you're there to create hypotheses and test them and test them the best way possible yep. get the design of the experiment done correctly make sure that whatever you do has the best chance of answering the hypothesis that you're testing so too much well off track here again but um, I, I think too much exploration work goes on that doesn't have a clear ending or an outcome right the, the work is designed not to answer the question in the most efficient way possible. You're uh, singing from my hymn sheet here. We had your mate uh, John Van on the podcast, and we ended up talking for several hours about exactly this topic. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, we could do well to remember. Uh, so let's get into how you got into the mining industry from from your PhD. How did who did you join, and and how did that come about? Yeah, well. In fact, this time a fairly well-worn path. So I was doing my PhD out in the O'Leary block out the other side of Broken Hill, for those people who don't know where it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where I was working, doing it, and Pazminko was exploring out there at the time. And they were running an air corps drilling campaign out in the middle of fucking nowhere, right? And, um, <laughs> and uh, kept hitting gold, but couldn't work out why there was gold uh, in, in this air corps campaign. But because I'd been studying the landscape and the geochemistry out there, uh, that's can you just come out and have a look at it? And um, uh, old mate Nick Cook was out there working at the time, um, so I went out there and had a look. And because because I'd been studying the exposed landscape, I'd, I'd worked out that when you're out in the plains, that in fact you're dealing what you could see in the Alleri Hills was yep. identical to what you're drilling into out in the Benadry Ridge, mm-hmm. but it was just covered, mm-hmm. like you know, 30, 50, 80 meters of uh, tertiary and sometimes Cretaceous rocks, and so. But it, was, but it was hard, right? This is, you need to, th- again, it's process and thinking because the, there was, there'd been a deep weathering profile there. I didn't expect to be talking so much about geology, but anyway, there was a, quite a deep weathering profile there, which mm-hmm. had been uh, stripped off and redeposited on yep. these tri- tributaries and creeks in the pre tertiary times. So you had a, a deep weathering profile, which was very fine grained uh, kaolinite 
because um, it was deeply wet. It was this very, really almost mineable grade kaolinite. Mm-hmm. But that had been half eroded off and put into the tertiary sediments, which were also kaolinite and laminated. So if you're drilling with an air core rig and just looking at chips, you don't know whether you're going from tertiary to proterozoic. Right? You just, it's very, very difficult to tell. Yep. And so the running hypothesis at the time was that the gold mineralisation was within the proterozoic basement rocks. Mm-hmm. But I spent enough time looking at them, and I just thought it was one of those aha moments uh, sitting out in the core farm there, lining the you know, old-fashioned stuff, right? Just getting <laughs> getting the fucking drill chip trays out and lining them up in order that they were drilled like a fence line and just staring at them on the bench and going along. And, and then it finally occurred to me, oh, my God, all this gold's actually sitting at the unconformity between yeah. the protozoic and the tertiary. Yeah. It was not a basement deposit at all. It was a paleo-fucking-placer gold deposit. Is uh, this uh, North Portia? Or yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was basement mineralisation as well, but this part of the mineralised system was a paleo-placer deposit, which, of course, <laughs> talking about geological models and testing hypotheses and things, yeah, yeah. there's a whole pile of hypotheses went straight out the window um, mm-hmm. um, at that point. Um, but, you know, forewarned us right. But then... And then once we found that out, we started logging where the unconformity was, and you could actually map, map out the paleo landscape and the channels, and you could almost predict where the gold would be in these channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you could look at them and go, well, let's follow these. It's like ancient stream sediment sampling, right? Just let's follow them back up to the source on the ridge and find the primary source of mineralisation. Mm-hmm. And North Portia, as a case there, would have been the yeah. primary mineralisation sitting in the basement, which had been weathered and then dispersed. Um, uh, the, you know, the gold had become agglomerated and dispersed into the paleo channels. Um, yeah, wow. Well. <laughs> but there was also, it's a really, it's a chemist's playground, that place, because that's where you got the Beverly uranium deposit, the roll fronts that's right, as well. Yep. Yeah. It's all meta evaporites and everything, strange rocks. It, 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 it is, is, it yeah. is, yeah. And still, you know, to this day, and, and I'm talking about, so Pasminko, right? Pasminko was doing this work, and um, <laughs> so as I was doing that, I was at the latter stages of my PhD, and I was just out there working, and I said, oh, we actually need a geochemist, Um <laughs> Uh, we know you haven't finished, it's a classic, right? We, we know you haven't finished your PhD yet, but do you want a job? And, it, and of course, said, of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so Paul Roberts was my boss mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, I flew down to Melbourne uh, from Broken Hill. And I think we went out for lunch to have a, a bit of an interview. I think we sat there for about six hours talking about geology and <laughs> geochemistry. So that was, that, was, uh, that's, that was it. There was the job, the job for the taking. Yeah. Um, it was a great job for someone straight out of uni, actually. Yep. The principal geochemist for Pasmico and a global zinc mm-hmm. explorer. Nice. Uh, travel the world, learning all this stuff. It was just, just amazing. Were you looking to get into industry at that time? Like, is, yes, that, some, is yes. that an intention you had? Yes, it was. And in, I mean, I do like research and teaching, but I always regarded, I always knew that I wasn't going to be a, just a generalist geologist, that I was going to specialise. Yeah, and okay. so I, in a way, and this might upset some of the academics listening, but I regarded the PhD as, as a trade ticket. It, more or less the same thing for me. It just yeah, yeah, yeah. allowed me to go into the industry but specialise uh, in something very technical and also very numerate. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and that's the way, the way it worked out. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you, weren't, uh, so you wanted to have more of an applied sense to whatever you were kind of learning yeah, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, okay. I think ultimately I'm always a, I'll always be an, an applied yeah, yeah, yeah. person, a, a do something. Yeah, <laughs> do yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's the trade in me, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's right. Just so Ahmed and I both work for MNG, which is uh, ex Zinefix, which is ex Pasminko. Mm. So, but it's uh, very diluted by this point. But I think I understand elements of the Pasminko culture. One of the 
great explorers of yesteryear. Yeah. So what was it like working for Pazimanko? Yeah, look, um, I often reflect on it now about what such a good exploration group that group was. Oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... Um, you know the data. The data we had, the global view. There was not. There was nothing we didn't know about zinc. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're a zinc exploration company. We got distracted by gold and other things occasionally, but yeah. uh, pretty things. Um, but zinc. So anyone could bring any zinc project to us from anywhere in the world, and we'd have an opinion on it in fifteen minutes about what it was worth and it was whether it was worth farming yeah, into yeah, or yeah. buying off them. Just because we had this enormous database of every zinc project, mm-hmm. we knew. Every zinc mine, we knew all of the operating parameters of the mines, their input costs. Um, we could, you know, from a conceptual point of view and exploration uh, at the time, uh, we could put, we could model any style of zinc deposit anywhere on the planet and work out whether we could mine it economically. Yeah, wow. Um, all of that, which really, really uh, informed our exploration process. So we would only go to places where we knew that if, what we were looking for was there. We could mine economically, period. Yep. Well, we didn't muck around with anything else. Um, so it sounds like the company was very kind of technically driven. Is that a very, fair comment? Very, yeah. very, you know, very. And really, I mean, I'd like to this day, I think there's some really high-caliber cali- high geos in that team. Well, geoscientists, really. Yep. Uh, it worked in an extremely – it was a bit like Western Mining, I suppose. It, the technical teams were all very integrated um, with the operational exploration teams. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a – you know, we used to use conditional probabilities to work out where we'd go and what we'd do next and change the sequencing of methods and technologies when you'd bring them to bear on the exploration project. Uh, yeah, you, know, you might start out... You know, I used to tell the project generation guys, um, what you... Right, you just tell us... You just tell me where on the fucking planet when you've zeroed it down to a few hundred kilometres, then I'll come in and help you out. But all the other wanky stuff, you just get on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, but we, uh, we, uh, we had some man, we had some good fun as yeah. well. So the um, so this is a bit of a tangent, and I want to ask it now because we're kind of talking about it. Yeah, I guess for someone, um, I guess for my generation, you know, like you kind of hear of these uh, companies like Zinfex and Pazminko and WMC and uh, you know, like Mount Isa, all of the which were very technically driven for a long, long time. And but we don't seem to talk about companies in the same sense now that they are, you know, where they're maybe perhaps technically driven to that to that extent. You know, for someone that has kind of gone from you know that era to this era and still kind of deals with companies, you know, you can choose not to answer this question, but uh, but I know you probably won't. Yeah. Um, but do you want to? You probably know I have an opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm hoping the glass of wine will help there. Uh, but do you care to comment a little bit about why we seem to have that two kind of distinct eras? Like, you know, how come companies used to be more technically focused? Yeah, once upon a time, and we don't seem to kind of talk about them in the same vein now. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you've got to be a bit careful as well, but looking at the past through rose-coloured glasses yep. as well, so you've got to sort of remove that yep. bias from your thinking, I suppose. And it's, and if I make some of these comments, I'll probably be a bit too general as well, because yep. I know it's not the case everywhere. Yep. I but mean, like I understand, you know, there's kind of the concept of survivorship bias as well. You know, the yeah, companies sure. that were bad, you know, obviously yeah. no one talks about them because they, yeah. you know, went into the the sands of time. But we obviously talk about the companies that that succeeded. But yeah, in general terms, it seems to be that we probably focused a little bit more on 
I guess, the technical development of companies and people, you know, once upon a time, maybe yeah, we don't so, have the same right, focus now. Like for sure. And there was mentor, things like mentoring, right? There mm-hmm. was a, there was a, I don't even make this stuff up or not what you think about, but there was a more even age distribution, I think, in the industry back then as well. So if you went into the industry at 25, you're probably working with someone who was helping that was 30 and their boss might have been 40 and they had a manager that was 50. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there was that passing up and down the line of experience and wisdom and you had time yep. to learn things. Um, it's a gross generalisation, but I think it's true. Uh, I think the other, if you go back to that era, there was a big emphasis on get data. Yeah, right? okay. So generate data. That's your job, right, as mm-hmm. geoscientists. Go out, generate new data and we'll look at it. Whereas I think, and this might be changing now because the exploration's ramping up all around the world again, as it should. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we went through an era where people just wanted to recycle data and not go to the yeah, time, okay. effort, trouble, money, etc., to generate new stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And old data is useful when you put it together and re-look at it, that's fine, but it's still old data. It's, yeah. it, it's always, people forget it. It's, it was collected at a certain time here in a certain way, analyzed or some way all that sort of thing and That's so it's all I compromised and uh, you know uh, even in the gold fields here if you look at a map of drilling you go fuck me dead there's nothing left to find there that's uh, the shit filled <laughs> out of it but actually you go well well actually wait on wait on none of these drill holes are deep than 100 meters over yeah, yeah, huge areas fun. and um, uh, and they might have at the time uh, you know this hypothesis testing regime with some of the gold explorers back in the day would assay for gold and nothing else right mm-hmm. uh, well you know, gold has a very small footprint uh, when you're drilling for it, whereas maybe if you did arsenic with it, you'd have a slightly bigger footprint to look for. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, so things like that. But people think that if you pull all this data out and you're looking at those gold assays, that you're done, right? Oh, yeah, I had a look at that. There's nothing there. You get, wait, fucking wait on. <laughs> how can you say that? <laughs> you you just high. can't say that, right? You, how about you go back and drill a deeper hole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, just... Um, have a punt. Here's, here's um, 250 grand. Go and drill a kilometre deep hole there and have a look. Mm-hmm. Test your hypothesis. Um, let's see what's there. And that will inform our next decision. Yeah, yeah. Now, clearly, companies do do that, but I, they probably happened more uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because I, you know, I, I did kind of ask the question in a leading way because you got back to your point, I think, which you said earlier on, is that you know, we do have to kind of remember that, yeah, we are a hypothesis testing kind of yeah. business. And so I think, yeah, like, you know, not to not to throw any shade at companies nowadays, but I think, yeah, that shift where maybe we've not, uh, we don't put as much importance into that aspect, yeah, maybe has elicited this behavior where now we yeah. are, you know, not necessarily kind of having a process right from a technical point of view. And then hence that's created this behavior that we're not, you know, valuing that aspect anymore. Yeah, right? and you could even take it to another level. So CRA, right, the old Rio Tinto, um, or the other way around, whatever way you look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll probably get a few emails about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, CRA, uh, with their systematic exploration, um, they had a lot of opinion. Well, we don't know what we don't know, a bit like that Rumsfeld quote. Um, yep. So whatever you're doing, we're just going to, an ICP uh, ES analysis come out where you could do, 35 elements, you know, quite efficiently and cheaply. Uh, they just say every sample goes to 35 elements. That's it, right? There's no picking and choosing, no exploration yeah, yeah. manager. You know, back then, going, no, no, I only want copper lead and zinc, nothing yeah. else. Uh, no, no. It can only be $12 a sample, yeah. yeah. Can't be 14, yeah. 12 and 12. Yeah. They said, no, it, it gets analysed for everything you said because they said, you don't know when we'll be back. 
yep. will change our hypothesis, perhaps, and then we can go back to that data and we have the data to evaluate it without needing to do more work. Mm-hmm. See, so, I th- CRA was a great explorer. Yes. and But very different to Pazmenko and Western mm-hmm. Mining. But th- that theory is also lost. That, that culture's also been lost for some reason. We've worked with ex-CRA people who go, no, you don't want to be out wasting your time being the first to collect things. Whereas, so Western Mining Pazmenko are trying to outthink their way, CRA are trying to outdata their way and things, mm. and somehow we've all got mixed up that neither is worth doing, and that we should be recycling things that already exist. It's like crazy that we've ended up in this space. Choose one of the models; it doesn't really matter. There's a bit of aggro sometimes between CRA and WMC people, yes. but you know what? I don't really care. Yeah. Both of them oh, no, were, were choosing two. to find something for the first time. Yeah, there were two different ways to kind of skin the cat to yeah. some degree, right? So, yeah, that, that was it. I mean, and both were successful by employing different methods. So. Mm. No. I, I'm always fond of a quote from Robert Friedland, which is the best way to outperform someone is, is to go where they haven't been. Which, mm. The way he used to phrase it was, you know, the best way to find an Easter egg is to go where your brother and sister haven't looked. That is so lost at the moment where people will go, no, I'll go back to exactly where people have already been. Mm-hmm. As if right, and people forget that that lost or unknown space is often where things have been found, but at a kilometre depth, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, yeah, that's how. So it, there's not much deep drilling goes on still. And you look at the S&P numbers and that, and uh, there really still isn't a lot of deep drilling Um no, 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 that's all right. And I think you like maybe it's the the fact that, you know, for whatever we we seem to be in a different kind of uh fiscal setup now as well, where people, you know, they you know, like I always think it's a little bit strange when people want something uh big or you know, want people want something of high value, but they're not uh wanting to invest an appropriate amount to get that value. <clears throat> um, yeah, like it's kinda like if you're not taking on a certain level of risk, then yeah, your return is never gonna be to that level, uh, so unless you're wanting to put that money in, you know, the the commensurate kind of reward you're going to get is always going to be capped at some level. Oh yeah, yeah, and I think the the other mistake we sometimes make now is um, if you have a a strategy and a program, um, doesn't mean you're going to find what you're looking for in the first half of that program. You need to execute the whole fucking program, right? Because yeah, right. there's some chance it's the last hole you drill in the program. But if you get bored halfway through. Yeah, it's not working. Like, so wait on. Yeah. The program wants to do this quantum of work, and you, if you stop halfway through, that's right. You've not tested the hypothesis. So you mm-hmm. Come back to that point. That's, yeah. And that's why I think that scientific theory is is really important. Back mm. to the concept: if you haven't tested a hypothesis, you haven't explained an EM conductor, mm. you haven't explained a feature that you were looking at, then you haven't done anything. You've got to finish your program. Amount of times when people suddenly uh, assume that things are not going to work out, even though history tells us that uh, you've got a serendipity. We did a whole two, three hours on serendipity. serendipity like, come on. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. know how important uh, these yes. things are, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, like, you know, we're kind of getting into a point where, you know, like we'll talk about uh, what you did with Iogas, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's kind of an example of where, uh, you know, there's a certain level of commitment, you know, in R&D and, and things like that. And if you kind of look at explorations R&D or you look at these things, you know, like you have to kind of accept that a certain percentage of your investment will be inefficient, but you're hoping that the certain percentage of it is in is efficient enough for you to give you the reward that you want. Yeah, and then that's kind of the challenge I think that we find ourselves in. That you know we don't want uh, you know we don't want to be labored with the fact that we've had too much inefficient kind of investment. So hence 
make no investment because that's a way to kind of eliminate that mm. inefficient investment. I, I could talk about this topic for hours, <laughs> but I actually know a funny story about you finishing your PhD, but I think I'll let you oh. tell it. <laughs> oh, well, so this is the interface from PhD to working at Pesmico. So I didn't finish the PhD before I started working at Pesmico, yeah. as you might expect. I'm not well, the only person that's done yeah, that. Yeah, well, there's two people in this room that haven't finished their PhD, <laughs> so, so let's just go with that. I haven't finished my bachelor's. Um, so i I just went into so i literally got the phd and stuck it in boxes and threw it in the garage say i'll I'll write that yeah and and of course i was working as a principal geochemist i was traveling continuously around the world so it wasn't gonna fucking happen by any means but um but something must have been happening in the back of my mind because i was saving up annual leave and thinking at some point well i'll take a chunk of annual leave and do it um, which also proved to be problematic. But Pesminko started to go bad uh, and go under through no fault of the exploration department. I might yep. uh, I, I, I <laughs> might have something to do with hedging and an implantation of SAP, but uh, anyway, let's not talk, <laughs> let's not talk about that um, and uh, the price of zinc tanking. But anyway, uh, so, so as it was sliding out the back door slowly but surely, um, yeah, expiration. We were talking about funding and where you spend your money. So the funding dried up for expiration. Um, things got cut. Field programs got cut back. And then there was ban on travel. Well, it's pretty difficult to do expiration. You're not allowed to travel. So people were sitting around the head office twiddling their thumbs going, well, what the hell are we going to do? And I thought, well, I said, this is, this is it. This is my chance to actually go home, take my six or seven weeks of saved up annual leave and just write the PhD. Yep. And... Like, to this day, I don't quite know how I got motivated, but that's exactly what I did. I, I took the leave. I went home. I got it out of the boxes a few years later now. It's all bloody brain cells that were most definitely toasted in the intervening three, yeah. three years. So I dug the thing out and um, wrote it in six weeks. Um, wow. And that was, uh, yeah, no, what? <laughs> I don't know where to start with that. So, I mean, you know, it's two, 16 hours a day just continuously writing reading papers, trying to pull that shit back in your head and then regurgitate it onto a sheet. Uh, at least two packets of cigarettes a day just to keep me alive and going. Um, <laughs> oops. Um, uh, Are you my, still married? Yeah, well, and of course, my, we had a, a young child and a... We had one or two. God, that's bad. God. Sorry, boys. Um, two, maybe one very little. Uh, yeah. But my wife moved out. Uh, this actually moved in with my parents in Geelong. That's how bad I was. <laughs> You've got to be bad for your wife to move in with your parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the, the whole house was just a shitstorm of bloody paper and stuff spread over the place. But I finally finished it. Uh, well, you know, got it to a point where I could give it to someone to read and correct mm-hmm. it. Uh, but a mate came over, you know, and he came over and he said, he looked at me, and he didn't, they didn't, all my mates didn't quite know what I'd been up to. He looked at me and he said, you crook, Dave. You got cancer or something. So I was just he asked me because I was I was just dead pale, with black bags under my eyes, and, and looked just looked ill actually, yeah. just from the probably from the two packets of cigarettes a day and no sleep for weeks on end. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I got the damn thing in. Um, it was a miracle, I think. Yeah. I'm so glad I did in the end. Yeah, do, do that. Um, well, it, nudge, nudge, nudge. Yeah, twist, yeah. twist. No, no, no. But let, the, let that be. Let that be a lesson to other PhD students. Like, uh, yes. Yeah, so by the time you finish, you look like a cancer patient. Inspiration. Yeah, that's a. So how did I think my supervisor Paul Ashley was possibly the most surprised person on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> had to 
So from there to to Anglo, how how, how did that happen? Yeah, so well, another one of these stories. So um, while I was finishing my PhD and Pasminko was going under, Anglo American was looking for a geochemist, mm-hmm. and uh, oh mate, Nigel Brand was the Australian geochemist time here in Perth. I was living over in Melbourne and Geelong. Um, and he said, oh, Chris Oates, who was going to be my boss in Anglo, was looking for another geochemist. And so I got, I ended up being retrenched uh, from Pesmico. And, and you've got to be retrenched once or twice in your life. It helps you buy furniture and stuff like that <laughs> yep. after you've been a student, uh, literally. We still have some of that furniture we bought with the retrenchment <laughs> money. Uh, so I got retrenched on the Friday and started work on Monday with Anglo-American. Um, and, and again, similarly, a big base metal looks You know, I've always... I think it's a trade for me. I mean, I've worked in gold and consulting and everything, but when working as for companies as a explorer, mm-hmm. I've only really wanted to work for base metal companies I've, because I've always wanted to find stuff that's useful that you build shit with, not that you, not that you stick underground and use it as a to back something to back up your currency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I understand that completely. <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, useful I'm sure stuff. Let's find some useful industrial stuff, right? And, uh, uh, so then I started with Anglo, and uh, again, uh, and I moved to Vancouver. So I lived in Vancouver, but I was in a global role with Anglo American again, mm-hmm. uh, but working out of the Vancouver office. Uh, and yeah. again, you know, just a it, there's been it's different crew to who John Van works with there. Now it was quite a mm-hmm. while ago, uh, but again, uh, just a terrific group of people. Uh, really, really fantastic. Um, you, you know, I was just telling someone the other day, and they say, "How are you going with not travelling, Dave?" And I said, "Well, I was all right until about a month ago. Now I'm not okay, actually, with not travelling. Get out of this place, buddy McGowan's got us all trapped here. <laughs> <laughs> Prick. That's Comrade McGowan for those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's overseas, no, no, no. Emperor, Emperor, he's Emperor there. Yeah. yeah, Daddy McGowan. Daddy, yeah. Daddy. Yeah, stay yeah. Daddy. He might let us out to play another yeah. sometime. Um, but, you know, the places you see and, and go is doing exploration. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've been to Peru many times. Have I been to Machu Picchu? No. Um, but if I've been up in I've the high... I've been to Cusco without going to Machu Picchu. Yeah, That's right. even worse. <laughs> but if I've been in the high Andes in the middle of absolutely nowhere, just, just hanging out, yes, you know, with the locals drinking bloody some home-brewed moonshine stuff out of a plastic bottle they carry around on the back of the Tojo. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so. yes, you know, sleeping in a tent with them. Yes, yeah, that's that's all of the, the real fun stuff. And um, I think that might be lost. That maybe that's another thing that's a bit lost on the industry. But that that that's actually fun. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I that, that's real boys' own stuff and girls' own now, of course. But you know, yeah, um, yeah. That that's that's why you do it. You, you get out and you do all this stuff and. Yeah, I mean, in the current environment of you know, like um, risk uh, risk mitigation, I think that a lot of that stuff is. Yeah, it's definitely dead. I think. Yeah, you know, it's a hard to, it's hard to justify. I think a lot of that kind of stuff now. It's amazing because you know, one of the things that I've been accused of is um, being too romantic about what is exploration, and I just do not apologise for that because I think no. a lot of people listen to stories like that and stories like we tell, and that's what they want from their careers. Yep. That yeah. they want that lifestyle. Mm. Uh, otherwise, you choose a different career. And you should and choose you should. a different career if you don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, very yeah, much so. Um, yeah. I mean, if someone had told me, uh, at the big, even when I was at uni doing geology, that you know, at some point in my professional life I'd be wearing snowshoes out in the middle of fucking um, Alberta somewhere, um, drilling frozen soil samples out of the ground, uh, I would have said, what? 
but that's what you end up doing, right? That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's you just end up doing stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drinking Kuiperingas in the middle of the Amazon and core right. farm. And that's <laughs> right. Yeah. With the boys there just pulling the sugar cane straight out of the field next door and crushing it up in the glass. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just, I mean, really, not every day's like that, of course, but those days make up for a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's right. home. So we better talk about I guess. Right. Um, so let's start with the, an obvious because it seems a bit strange to have a conversation about uh, a piece of uh, software, but we'll, let's start with what is I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's it's evolved, I suppose. But look, it, fundamentally, it's a it's a package designed for geoscientists for doing what I'd call exploratory data analysis, mm-hmm. uh, with the emphasis being on easy to use, very not a steep learning curve, very visual. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've done a, obviously done a lot of teaching around, I guess, over the years. But this, uh, I think, with Yes, we're scientists and all, all the rest of it, but I think to take a statistical approach to geoscientific data is actually the wrong thing to do. I think geoscientists, maybe if they've got a leaning or a natural inclination, as they're typically visual people, um, think in 3D. Or so these are skills mm-hmm. most people don't have, right, even thinking in 3D, but we get trained to do it. But I think if you can, if you can present data to people in an interesting visual way that's interactive, People can work out what's going on with it very quickly, actually. Mm-hmm. Because if there's if there's one thing that the human brain is very good at, it's looking at patterns and spatial representations right, of data. Yeah. And in fact, that's a very difficult thing to replicate with these fancy data science, analytics, whatever you want. It's actually very difficult to replicate. So, you know, with IOGAS, it's, it doesn't replace thinking. It presents the data to you in a way that allows you to work out what the answer is, mm-hmm. if I can surmise it like that, which is philosophically quite a different way to go about doing something like that. We, I don't think IGAS should ever give you the answer. It should mm-hmm. help you come to the answer yep. as efficiently as possible. Yep. So it does uh, – you don't need to know all the fundamentals, though. You don't, um, and uh, we can tell what people use in gas now that's got Google stuff in it and – they're all anonymized, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, that comes back. So we know what people are doing and what they use. And to this day, with all of the users around the world, the, the really simple things that were beating gas from day one are still the most popular. Um, yep. Uh, and I think the clever thing about the interface is it's really easy to show someone how to use it. Like in fifteen minutes, you're saying it. This is how gas works. It's a couple of paradigms, and and they can use it very effectively from that point on. But then it's a bit like Alice in Wonderland. You disappear down the bloody rabbit hole because you can just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper if you want to, right, if your brain gets drawn into it. That's right. And you can then start splitting apart and pulling apart all of these really quite deep relationships mm-hmm. and data. So the so one obvious question I have is uh, everything that you said makes total sense. Mm. Was that the original intention of Iogas? Um So let me go back a bit further then. That's where gas is now, I suppose. But mm-hmm. Um, so when I've been involved in software for looking at well geochemistry and geoscience for a long time actually mm-hmm. uh, even going back to my PhD which had a heavy I mean if I was renaming my PhD now it would be called analytics and geochemistry or something yep. like that. but back then it was just applied maths yeah. very, a much more unsexy word <laughs> uh, but even back then I was compiling Fortran code and writing Fortran myself mm-hmm. just to do this stuff 
Uh, but then even when I was working at Pazminko, I worked with some devs to get some of that stuff I'd done in Fortran reprogrammed in Visual Basic, uh, yep. for example, just to make it accessible and a bit more easily usable. Um, I helped the guys writing Discover, the, the add-on to Map Info, put the, some geochemistry tools uh, into that. This is all pre, I guess, remember? This mm-hmm. upset some people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and worked, uh, you know, Owen Parfrey, who's ever li- listening to this, he, he used to work for me at, at Pazminko, then he went off to work for um, Discover and Encom and do mm-hmm. the programming for it. Um, and then uh, even when I was with Anglo, I worked a lot with Geosoft and building their Geocam yep. module as well. Just cause, So I've always been tried to democratise the process of doing this sort of work, make it more available. Yep. So when I... When I when I went to IOS, this is another step in the story after Anglo. So uh, when I was at Pasmico, I worked with uh, Steve Winter, who I was the chief geochemist. He was the chief uh, computing geologist, I didn't call it at the time. Um, um, but he he went out and started IO Digital, mm-hmm. which is sort of an off, off-premise GIS and database management service for yep. Pasmico. Um, and so this is ironic. I signed the very first purchase order to get IO Digital running for Steve. Uh, that's when I was with Pazminko. Mm-hmm. Then IO Digital was running along for three or four years. And then Steve, uh, uh, who I know very well, uh, he came and visited me in Vancouver and we're just drinking out the back or something. And he said, why don't you come and join IO? And mm-hmm. Let's do some geochem stuff in IO. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> about, that was about the extent of the thought process, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. Which in hindsight might not be yeah whatever um so i threw in a perfectly good and promising and very large career with a big multinational company to go and do something quite mad mm-hmm. um, and entrepreneurial but i knew i was i was going to do something like that at some day i just knew it was i think i think near the end we might talk about this sort of stuff but if it's in you you've got to do it if you yeah, never yeah, if yeah. you never do it you'll go to the grave and regret never doing it if that yep. makes sense yeah. Um, so you have to scratch that itch at some you point. You have to scratch that yep. itch, yeah. And I rang up Graham Brown, who was my boss at the time over in London, and I, I must have sent him an email overnight or something. And and uh, Graham Brown, who's Scottish, <laughs> rang me up at the morning at Vancouver with his Scottish accent. Dave, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck have you resigned? I said, Graham, I, uh, uh, I need to go and just do this and start a company with Steve and build it up. And, oh, and to this day, we have a, still have a joke about it. And goes, oh, that's all right then. I understand. That's fine. Yeah. That's a, I think it was probably more concerned I was going to BHP or something like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> would be more annoying yeah. for it. Uh, but yeah, so then joined IO and then moved to lovely Perth, um, which is which again is a funny story because I always knew I'd end up living in Perth and being an Eastern Stater. I always thought Perth was a was a was a backwater to put it politely yeah. and, and, and let's just let's just be honest you're from, from geelong, geelong right? yeah. <laughs> well there you go and i still thought yeah, that was backwater. Yeah, okay. but yeah. I, actually i used to joke with my mate saying the only way i could possibly move to perth would be to come back to australia from outside the country and go straight there otherwise i'd never make it and that's exactly what happened um but yeah 20 years ago perth was a horrible backwater there's no doubt yeah though still you know even back then i think only just gotten past having rostered bloody chemists and the <laughs> everything <laughs> anyway let's not get on better yeah, it's, it's, yeah, much, yeah. it's much different yeah. these days are you going to rant about the daylight savings next no, or no 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 there are there are 
some things which I've just purged my brain and yeah. don't mention it anymore. Yeah, yeah. So just talking about gas, obviously, uh, mm. at what stage mm. does it go from Sorry. gas to... Yeah, so let me come back to gas. And so iDigital at the time, so we re- renamed it iGlobal. So it did web-based data management. And I started up the geochemistry consulting business as part mm-hmm. of my at the time. Um, and, you know, I took a lot of advice from Mike Etheridge at the time about running a consultancy. Uh, at the time, uh, NCOM and SRK were part owners of IO at the time, which is not well known, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we were running a consultancy, starting to get a few people on. Uh, Mike Whitbread, who mm-hmm. helped supervise his PhD, came on. He was working for us, starting to build that out. Uh, but, you know, trying to do geochemical consultancies in combination of fucking Excel, um, <laughs> Datadesk, SPSS, Sysstat, Statistica, BDMP, you know, all, all this stuff, right? None of, none of it was just use that great. And it made it – the thing that really annoyed me was it was impossible to actually teach manipulating geochemical data properly using a whole shitstorm of that stuff. Right? Yeah. Um, and there's also a barrier to entry in that. You know, if you have a lot of software platforms or applications, yeah. you know, like not everyone has the full like toolkit, right? Like people have some and others have nothing. And, you and, know, and a geo is not going to go and ask their boss, can I buy yeah, a statistic? Right. And the boss goes, what the fuck do you want that for? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So just to paint this picture, what's the status of geochemistry in the industry at this stage? Yeah, so... Yeah, concentrated. <laughs> concentrated in a few people, right, uh, I would say. Um, yeah, very, very well, including myself, I suppose, at the time. Um, but but very concentrated in a, in a few people. Um, very... In decline, globally? I, I would say very few people. So this is one of the problems, I think, with what was going on, was people were collecting more geochemical data because the analytical methods allowed it, but doing less and less with it. Mm-hmm. Right, and then so then you got the things saying, you know, they might fight to get twenty bucks to do an assay and get a multi-element yep. assay, and then never use it. And then the boss says, "Well, you're not doing that again. You're yeah, back to twelve yeah. bucks now uh, if you're not going to use it." Right. Um, but it was that there are no new theories, right? All all the stuff you can do with geochemistry data is well known, but yep. doing it, you really needed a consultant to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So otherwise, you just couldn't do it. And there were very few people who could do it. One of the things which is useful in geochemistry uh, is using classification-type diagrams that get published in the academic mm-hmm. literature. Now, to make practical use of those things is virtually impossible, right? Uh, it really is. It, it yep. They may as well not exist most of the time because you can't use them unless you're extremely dedicated. And yep. people would be turning a classification diagram into a map in MapInfo and using coordinates as geochem columns to plot them on and then you know, all, all this sort of stuff. That's fine. You do it yeah. once, the next time you go, no, no. And they've probably stuffed it up as well. Right? Yep. If, it, if it's got a a molar ratio, oh my God, I've yeah, fucked that up. Right. <laughs> I've yeah. fucked up the calculation, it's yeah. all wrong. But. Or to get even get like the control lines and all of those kind of reference lines, you know, yes. what a fucking pain in the ass that used yeah. to be. Yeah. Yep. So so then, so this is this is where Simon Gaydas and Scott Halley come into the story. So this was, I wasn't the only person that was had the shits about this situation. So, uh, Simon, uh, you know, 10 years before gas became my gas, was working on a gas, if you like, which was scripts working in ArcView. Mm-hmm. Not ArcGIS. Most people won't even know what ArcView is, but it's an ancient version of, yep. of ArcGIS. Um, and in S+, which became R, uh, this is all ancient fucking yep. history, right? Um, 
Uh, but that IP moved along a few, co- like RGC and companies like that, that, that Simon and Scott worked for, uh, ended up in Barrick, and Barrick thought, well, it's actually quite useful. There was just a whole bunch of little routines to mm-hmm. doing, make some, doing some stuff simple. And a guy called Andrew Scott, who worked for Barrick at the time, contracted Cargini, a little software company here in Perth run by John Jessup, to rewrite it as a standalone bit of desktop software. Yeah, well. uh, and so John uh, rewrote it, wrote a little standalone program in Java mm-hmm. to more or less sort of replicate what all those little scripts were doing. Um, it, which he did, but then, and John had the IP for it then, John Jessup, but he didn't know what to do with it. He said, well, I've done it, now what? And so that just at that time, I was starting IA Geochemistry, and so I knew John uh, previously. So he came around and said, look, I've, I've got this thing, do you want to desire, I want to buy it and keep developing it? Uh, and in fact, the first time around, I said, no, it's a piece of shit. Because <laughs> it was. Actually, sorry, John. Uh, <laughs> it was a piece of shit. Um, but and so I said, no, go away. We'll just. It was so bad that we we're quite willing to keep using all those other rubbish <laughs> conglomeration of other things. Yeah. Uh, but then, but then Phil Baker, who was working for Western Mining actually at the time, uh, he came to us and said to Iowa and said, "Can you guys make a system where I can classify my samples on different classification diagrams without it being a night an existential nightmare?" Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was thinking, I said. Man, did that gas thing? I think that had something, some element of a classification thing in it. So I said to John, "Come in again, um, had a look at it, and it could. It was really bad. That was terrible, <laughs> but it was enough, right? It was just it's little things that you know the world's non-linear. It's little yeah, things yeah, and little coincidences come together and launch you off in a different direction. It was just enough, and I said to John, "Well, yeah, we'll buy it off you, but we've got no fucking money, of course. So uh, we'll give you a bit of cash, but we'll." pay for it out of royalties out of for future software sales um and so we did a deal right to purchase the ip mm-hmm. um and that was the start of it it was called gas at the time and i think you'd have to ask simon i'm not sure quite why graphical analysis system geochemical analysis system something like that um and i still remember this day sitting in the office for a day trying to work out a new name for it and said <laughs> just said i'll oh, just fucking i'll just call it iogas right <laughs> so that's what we did the, which was fine so we took it on and, uh, I mean, we didn't have any Java developers right after buying anything. Oh. Uh, so Rob Wall, who was working for John Jessup, doing some contract work for him, John said, well, Rob is a really good Java dev. Why don't you get him to do it? So in the early days, it was um, it, it was done in outside of working hours, if you like. So it would be us chatting on a very ancient version of Microsoft Messenger, just you know that, that old thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the evening, most likely me drinking him half renovating his house while he was talking to me and just at night just doing it and he was just working on it we're just paying him by the hour just to put enough into it and just to clean it up a bit and add a few things into it to make it a, a minimum viable product it's actually a bit of a joke it was a minimum viable something I wouldn't have called it a product at that time. Yeah. Um, but just enough just enough and um, we got it to a point where we I think we might have even called it version 0.9 as a tacit ignition <laughs> that it wasn't a completely fully fledged and supported product. There were no help files, nothing. Yeah. Uh, but we put it on the market and we there was a geochem conference here in Perth, actually, it was 2004 or six or something, and put a little thing up saying we're, saying we're selling it. And um, we made our first sale at that conference and it was 950 bucks at the time. And the guy that bought it actually brought 
to us at the booth $950 in a brown paper bag <laughs> to buy it. And, uh, and Steve and I, being so hopelessly honest, actually banked it. <laughs> the, there's things you look back in your life and go, why did we do that? Yeah. <laughs> we should have we gone straight down to the bloody casino or something. Yeah, had, yeah, a, had a night out and celebrated our first sale uh, yeah. without paying any tax on it, of course. Uh, but but then, and then we're off and running, right? And, um, uh, and <laughs> the geochem team was building up in IA. We're doing lots and lots of consulting work. So, mm-hmm. so it became an integral tool for us to do our consulting properly and efficiently. Yep. And so there were lots of, lots of the way, there were lots of reasons that gas has, lots of the things that gas in it has in it is due to that consulting work yeah, and, and interacting with people. And then you know, as a consultant, you go somewhere and do some work and then tell them what you did. You want them to keep doing it. Yeah, but yeah, if yeah. they don't have the tools to keep doing it, then what's the fucking point? Right? Yeah. Uh, so the early days of gas, that's sort of how it got out there is we would do work for them. They'd see us using gas, go, oh, geez, that's cool. Can I do that? You're just, well we'll do this, show you how to use it, then you can do it. Yep. And they'd buy it and do it like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had some geochem consultants at the time going, what the fuck are you doing? And you cut all of our throats, you know. <laughs> People can do it themselves. And I'd say, well, <laughs> do you want to spend your life, you know, you, you get jobs, you spend three weeks cleaning data up and three days looking at it and have to charge them a month's worth of work. Well, that's not my modus operandi, right? I'd, mm-hmm. I'd rather not spend that three weeks doing that sort of shit stuff. So I said, no, no, I want people doing having tools to make that process incredibly efficient and get to a point where they actually come and ask you something interesting. Yeah, that's and so then your consulting becomes interesting. And then to go back to the hypothesis testing, you have people looking at their data properly and they come back and then you start thinking about what is the physics and chemistry going on in this area that's creating that pattern that you can see in gas and how can I link that back to an mm-hmm. all-forming process or a dispersion process, the actual science of geoscience, right? Yeah. Rather than sitting in doing search replace um, you know people copying columns around and having the wrong labels on the top of columns unit conversion errors you just name it right just um, and so to this day in gas the, one of the most popular features is the data doctor yeah that's fine which is a result of probably 150 man years of dealing with shit data and trying to automate fixing it when you just hit a button right I actually have a special, the gas devs actually, <laughs> oops, sorry, should I say this? <laughs> um, actually built me a special version of gas. And I used to forget, so because they knew which license was mine and things would happen in the software. And I would forget, right? And so my version of the data doctor, the icon, um, was a bit like a Benny Hill nurse. <laughs> and, uh, I used to forget, I was just there all the time, I just forget. And I'd be in a client's office showing them the data doctor and pressing this button and they'd be looking at it and going, Dave, what's that icon? <laughs> <laughs> it's 2.0. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's in beta. It's in beta. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that's it. right. Yeah, don't worry about that. And that ends part one of our interview with Dave. Next episode is part two of our interview. Join us then. This episode of Exploration Radio was brought to you by Amart Salim and Steve Beresford. Produced by Sean Jeffrey. Edited by Hamayu Mir. And recorded live in Perth in August 2021. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you reviewed us wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps us a lot. Exploration Radio is also supported by the Society of Economic Geologists, One to One Group, and the Assay. Until next time, let's keep exploring.